Hi, this is Nevadita Carr, the host of the New Books Network Anthropology Channel. And today we are joined by author Dr. Bruce O'Neill to talk about his latest book, The Space of Boredom, Homelessness in the Slowing Global Order. Great to have you with us here today. Dr. O'Neill, how are you? Uh, it's great to be here. Please call me Bruce. Oh, yeah. Okay, wonderful. So why don't we get started by what, telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this field and um, as a career as a social anthropologist? Uh, absolutely. You know, I have a, a long-standing interest in the, in the question of homelessness that kind of dates back to my childhood growing up in St. Louis. Um, it's been a, a topic that's always been interesting uh, to me ever since I was young. And when I went off to college, I majored in sociology and in philosophy. I was really interested in uh, thinking about homelessness in cities. And it's a theme that's kind of carried me throughout my, my trajectory. Um, I did my, my master's then in urban geography. Um, and again, was very much interested during that coursework about thinking about urban inequality and the various ways it takes shape. And originally, you know, I had um, intended to go back into um, sociology. But while, you know, doing my master's and applying to, to graduate programs, I, um, I had an instructor who kind of pulled me aside and, you know, said, look, the way you're, you're interested in asking and answering questions, I really think American anthropology is, is better suited for you. Yeah. Uh, and so I segued into anthropology and took my first anthropology seminar as a Ph.D. student. Mm. And what about your motivation specifically for writing a book on homelessness and globalization? Yeah, um, you know, again, homelessness is this longstanding um, interest of mine. And so as I moved from, you know, sociology to geography and the anthropology, I was invited to think about um, to think about urban inequality and homelessness in different ways. Um, and, you know, globalization, it's a it's a major um, topic in anthropology and it's hard to think about. Um, it's hard to, to think about anything anthropologically without thinking about um, the, uh, globalization and the global order. So it, it seemed like a very intuitive, um, intuitive subject to enter into. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then in particular, um, why was the focus on Romania? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and again, this is the, the kind of peculiarity um, I felt in terms of segueing into, into anthropology. Um, so, you know, I, I went and I pulled out some um, PhD. I'll, I'll give you the long story. Yeah. Um, application to graduate um, graduate courses. And, you know, what's peculiar about the, the anthropology application is that there's a box that asks you, where in the world do you want to study? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't a question that I had necessarily thought of before. Um, and so, you know, with all the time allotted in an application cycle, um, I started, you know, thinking about where in the world I was interested in, having grown up uh, in the 1980s and having caught the, the tail end of the Cold War, Eastern Europe always had a kind of mystique for me. Totally. Um, so my mind gravitated towards that region of the world. Um, and I started reading widely um, a number of histories in the region, and Romania just really caught my interest. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it was kind of a serendipity, and then, you know, things worked out. And I couldn't be happier. Bucharest is a lovely, it's a wonderful city to do research in. It's very safe, and I think, you know, endlessly interesting to think about. Yeah, totally. When I was reading your book, I was just, like, so fascinated by everything in um, Eastern Europe because it's, it just seems so different than um, in America, but at the same time, like, 
we have such similar problems. So I thought that was really interesting that you chose that region of focus. Um, and then also your book, of course, um, as the title suggests, deals a lot with homelessness and boredom and shows how they're so intricately intertwined. So could you maybe elaborate on this for our viewers? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I I never set out to write a book on boredom. Boredom was a kind of uh, problematic that emerged from the field work. So when I was doing uh, sort of preliminary interviews and site visits and trying to figure out how um, the study was going to take shape exactly, um, I found myself uh, chatting a lot with uh, beneficiaries of homeless shelters and of day centers um, and things like this. And very, um, you know, kind of common salutations of like, hey, how are you doing, would be met uh, time and time again with uh, the response of like, oh, I'm bored, there's nothing to do, these um, sort of statements about um, downtime. Hmm. And so um, it, for me, it became this kind of unavoidable theme that if I really wanted to study inequality and homelessness in Bucharest, I'd really have to wrestle with this question of, um, of boredom. Um, and so that, that was quite new um, and something that emerged out of the field work. Um, and it also posed these really interesting um, kind of methodological challenges. Um, you know, I, I wanted to, to write this, this ethnography about life on the streets. And so many of my conversations were structured around this sense of, um, of boredom, that nothing happens, um, that people's lives are kind of stalled out. And there is a kind of struggle to figure out how to tell a story about boredom when people are really, really insistent that there's no activity happening, that life narratives are not moving forward and that nothing is going on. Um, how does one structure an argument around that when the story seems to be the absence of activity? How do you build a narrative around this? Um, and that was kind of a major sort of challenge of the book is figuring out, well, how does one tell a story about this? Yeah, and um, especially I think your book deals a lot with um, downward mobility. So how does boredom, how do you feel boredom um, plays a part in downward mo mobility? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, one of the, uh, one of the key elements of the, of the book um, is understanding that homelessness is a relatively new phenomenon mm -hmm. um, in post-socialist Romania. Um, so under, under communism, there is no bureaucratic category called homelessness, and so there were no homeless shelters. There is this kind of alternative way of um, managing people who fell through the cracks of various state guarantee programs. Um, but the idea of homelessness emerged uh, only after the end of socialism and as Romania is gearing up for accession into the European Union in 2007. Um, it was only in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, that municipal administrators and others um, came to understand that they had something called a homelessness problem, that people were living on the streets and they needed to, um, that services needed to be provided and, and aid assisted or offered. And so um, what I think is really important here is that the, the people who eventually ended up in these newly constructed homeless shelters, there are people who in the uh, 1980s completed school systems. They're people who had uh, relatively stable work trajectories that had family lives, um, all of which became undone in the 1990s and 2000s as competitive markets emerged and state guarantees dissipated. Um, and so when I was in these homeless shelters and hearing um, a lot of talk about boredom, what I, I was hearing was how um, displacement and downward mobility, the experience of that, 
came across as the inability to, to do things that people had always done. Um, taken for granted activities um, just a few years before became unthinkable or unaffordable in the present moment. Um, and so people's days were, you know, structured around not the usual kind of activities, but a sense that um, there was a lot missing in the day to day. And so boredom and homelessness became really integral in that way. Um, and then another kind of uh, aspect of answering that question of how is boredom and homelessness integrated? A lot of it has to do with um, the management of this new homeless population. And so we can think about all of these new shelters, um, all of these new day centers, um, that are being developed to, to manage this population. And by and large, they're, they're being developed on the outskirts of town. Yeah. And so people who were uh, born and raised in the city are now, um, you know, given shelter and assistance outside of the city. And so there's also this sense of not even being able to walk through one's old neighborhood or to access um, public parks that are ostensibly free. Um, and so there's this kind of this kind of double movement of the, the lost ability to do all the things that one was accustomed to doing and then being relocated into these um, shelters that are just removed from uh, from the, the social life of the city. Yeah. Um, so could you maybe give some particularly telling examples of these um, homelessness tendencies constructed by boredom? Absolutely. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll think in particular about um, homeless shelter residents. So, um, you know, these, the, the primary homeless shelter where I was doing work, I, I call it backwoods in the book, um, and it's located outside of the city in a, in a former army barracks. And it's incredibly hard to get into the city from there, um, even if one could afford, you know, cab fare. Um, taxis would would not drive out to the shelter because it's outside the city limits and it's um, you know prohibitive to to pick up rides there. Um, its only connection into the city is a single bus line and it you know takes about an hour and a half to get into the city center. And so there's this kind of tremendous effort um, of time and money um, to kind of get out of the shelter and get into the city. And so instead, people spend by and large their days in, inside the shelter. Um, and there isn't, there isn't formal programming there. Um, there isn't jobs training or educational training or any kind of social activities that are going on. It's just kind of unstructured time. Um, and so, you know, people's days are made up with a lot of, um, pacing and smoking and fidgeting and things like this. Um, what I was really interested in, in the research, um, is that the, despite the kind of absence of, um, absence of programming or opportunity, um, so much of the, the life of these homeless shelters were structured around these, this kind of idle fidgeting and not so much rule breaking as one might expect um, in the United States or in the UK. The, the literature on homelessness is riddled with kind of an excitement or um, filled with this excitement of life at the margins. What was so fascinating about this to me is it links back to this idea of downward mobility. And so many of these homeless beneficiaries uh, were very, you know, um, cognizant about not breaking rules, not breaking laws, about wanting to maintain a last um, thread of kind of working class respectability. Um, and so we're kind of managing themselves in ways that were profoundly boring and limiting. Um, yeah. And so that I guess that kind of sort of brings me to the point of like um, how you as an ethnographer in the field um, observing all of this 
and being amongst the homeless shelters and the squatter camps, um, what kind of challenges did you face in the field? Yeah, um, you know, Romania, it's this incredibly safe country, and I'm um, ever so grateful for that. Um, I never had any serious issues, um, either with like petty theft or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, by and large, I, it was a very welcoming kind of uh, field to do, or site to do field work in. Um, if anything, methodologically, what was challenging is that um, my presence was often interpreted as a, as a relief from, from boredom. And so somebody who is interested in really documenting, well, what do people do when they're bored and how do they become, for lack of a better word, unbored? How do they, where do they go to seek out opportunity? Um, I found early on in the research that my presence had a way of kind of obscuring that. Um, and so one of the, the challenges of the study was just to, um, to do a tremendous amount of field work. I, I did about two and a half, a little under three years of, of in-country research for the book. And I made a point to work really long days to spend long stretches of time um, at shelters and at squatter camps um, in an effort to kind of make myself less of a novel figure in the field. So, yeah, I mean, for me, I think the greatest challenge in terms of field work was, you know, like any ethnographer, becoming a, a reasonably regular feature of the, the social world so that I could kind of um, understand how life unfolds. Yeah, um, I also thought it was particularly interesting about how you mentioned that there were more males that were homeless um, as, mm-hmm. as opposed to women. So could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, interestingly, there, there's, there's very little census or demographic data about the homeless population. Um, a formal definition of homelessness didn't emerge until about 2011 in Romania. So although there were homeless services, there really wasn't a definition as to who that population was or what its contours are, much less, you know, the, the breakdown of its demographic. But what I noticed time and time again is that uh, what homeless shelter space did exist had a, a preference for women and children. Mm-hmm. Um, and also um, when interviewing homeless men, uh, they would tell me, you know, time and time again that their wives or their children were able to move in with other family or friends in a way that they, the men, were not able to. So, you know, I, I would estimate just based upon my own observations in the field that probably, you know, three out of four homeless persons were, were male. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, services and uh, social housing programs, wanting to help women and children before helping men, um, and also social networks being more accepting of, of housing women and children rather than men. I think there's an expectation that... Um, a stronger expectation that men of a certain age go out in the world and make a place for themselves. And homelessness policy by and large reflects that. Hmm. And so how do you think that relates to homelessness in America? You know, there's, there's a, a fascinating um, study that um, really focuses on the, the, the gender dimensions of homelessness by this excellent scholar, Joanne Pissarro, um, The Unequal Homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, and in her work, you know, she set out to do a study specifically of homeless women in, I believe, New York City. Um, and again, sort of bumped into um, a homelessness policy um, and homeless services network that was really geared to moving women and children off the streets and um, in a way that really disadvantaged men. So I think it's, you know, a parallel phenomenon in the United States as well. Yeah, definitely. So what do you ultimately home- hope to inform readers about your book or what might some of our listeners 
hope to take away from your book upon finishing it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the book is really an invitation to think about um, globalization from the, the perspective of, of poverty rather than privilege. I think there is uh, a tendency to associate globalization with, you know, space-time compression and acceleration and um, um, the idea that the world is speeding up as a result of, you know, market-driven production and consumption, all of this market-driven activity. Um, and what I found in the book, um, working with the homeless in Bucharest, people who are displaced by and large by these competitive markets, um, is that for them, for the homeless, for displaced populations, um, they're not relating to globalization as something that's exciting or accelerating. Um, instead, their lives are, you know, by and large disorganized by competitive markets. They're less able to, to work a job and they're, they don't have paychecks to be able to go out and um, get caught up in, in consumerist activities. Um, and so from the, from the perspective of, of the homeless, globalization is, is really about this profound slowing down of time and of boredom. And I think it invites us to, uh, to think about alienation a little bit differently in the present moment um, and to think about um, how those who have been displaced by competitive markets, what it might mean to get them you know, caught back up and able to move towards opportunities of various stripes. Yeah, I think that there's such a big dissonance in globalization where there are so many people on the fringes. So I think it's really important um, to be reading books such as this and especially looking at sort of the constructs of what and the multiple dimensions of homelessness. So um, it really was such a fabulous book to read. And um, of course, I think some of our listeners would love to know what's next in this research, like sort of like what's the further directions of this research or um, do you have any future plans um, to tell us about? So I'm, I'm really happy that the, that the book is out and moving forward, I'm continuing on with field work in, um, in Bucharest and I'm, I'm pivoting from boredom to, to basements. I'm doing this study on the, the literal urban underground in Bucharest. In the last, you know, 15 years, um, there's been a lot of, uh, foreign direct investment and interest in developing and redeveloping central Bucharest. And a lot of it has meant not just building up the city, but excavating down um, and renovating basements and cellars and building new transit lines um, and parking garages and all these kind of underground developments. And so I'm interested in the way that um, that urban life is taking shape beneath the, beneath the city sidewalks and to think less about sort of center and periphery dynamics and think more about the kind of upstairs, downstairs, vertical relationships that are also organizing urban life. Um, so I'm really excited to carry on in Romania and to carry on in Bucharest. Oh, wonderful. That sounds um, like it will be fascinating to um, talk to you maybe again about in another interview. Um, so, yeah, well, I wish you the best of luck and um, just want to thank you again for being on our show today. And um, we hope that everyone really enjoys Dr. Bruce O'Neill's book. Um, so thanks again. Thanks so much. It was, it was great speaking with you.